0: is found in First Thessalonians chapter five verses 12 to 22, as we come now near to the end of our study in this book, First Thessalonians chapter five verses 12 to 22. Here now, uh, the word of the Lord. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The sins. the reading of the word of God. Let's now ask His blessing this morning in a word of prayer. Lord God, this we confess is a rich text which contains many directions for us and many implications for our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grapple with it this morning. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in us as we seek to understand what it is that you have said to us. And pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Being an active member of Christ's church can be a great challenge. And one of the primary reasons that it can be a great challenge is that it involves interacting with other people. And people, unfortunately, tend to be uh, imperfect. Uh, you may be able to identify with that remark. I hope you can. Um, there are no doubt degrees, varying degrees to our imperfection But we're all a little rough around the edges. So the course of life together, we occasionally come up against one another and we grate against each other and we begin to cause irritation. This is something which, of course, happens quite frequently. And left unchecked, our nerves will wear down, our patience will run thin, and before you know it, the the church will become an unenjoyable place to be. However, despite the commonplace nature of such difficulties, the the inspired authors of Scripture were not content to leave that sort of internal conflict unchecked. This sort of tension, in fact, is addressed frequently in the pages of the New Testament. We think of the number of occasions in the Gospels when Jesus finds himself playing referee between his disciples... Uh, We think of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which was necessitated by disagreements within the early church. Uh, We know that interpersonal strife prompted much of the material, which we find in the epistles. And even the book of Revelation, which we think of as a very uh, spiritual and otherworldly book, begins with a, a, a collection of letters to churches which address sin which existed In their communions. So this sort of interpersonal strife and sin. Seemed to be everywhere. Nevertheless. Despite the prevalence of the problem. Early believers were not to respond. With complacency or despair. Over this sort of problem. In other words they were not to get comfortable. With sin and conflict on the other hand. uh, Excuse me on the one hand. And they were not to flee the church in anger or sorrow over it on the other. Instead, as we find in the pages of our Bible, they were continually called to hear the Word of God and to heed the Word of God as it commanded them to be at peace with one another. And and I'm going to argue this morning that that command to be at peace is really... uh, The controlling command in our sermon text this morning. If there's anything that seems to tie all of these various pieces within our text together, it's that command to be at peace with one another. At this point in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is winding his letter to a close. Lord willing, we'll have one more sermon in this book next week, and then we'll move on to something else. And one of the ways that Paul winds this letter to a close... is is by working his way through a rapid-fire list of exhortations which he he thought the church needed to hear. And and while our first impression upon reading this list might be that it's completely random, a closer examination suggests, at least, that Paul is here giving the church a blueprint for living at peace with one another as they await his return to Thessalonica. This is evident from the fact that the command to be at peace with one another stands as sort of a transitional verse at the head of our passage, while at the other end of our passage, as we'll see next week, stands a blessing in the name of the God of peace. That's verse 23, we'll see next week. And so we may conclude that the many exhortations which are bookended by these calls to peace all contribute to the Thessalonians' ability to live at peace with one another. In the meantime. Therefore, as we come to First Thessalonians chapter five, verses eleven to twenty excuse me, twelve to twenty two today, the Bible is, is showing us how to live peacefully alongside one another. Our situation may differ from theirs in many ways, and yet, because this is the living word of God, it continues to speak to us, directing us towards a particular code of conduct within the Church of Jesus Christ. Let us end this morning. Consider four emphases in our text. Uh, As Paul here seeks to establish the church in peace. He exhorts the church, number one, to respect those in authority. That's verses 12 and 13. Number two, to help those in need. That's verses 14 and 15. Number three, to engage in worship together. That's verses 16 to 18. And finally, to test everything Verses 19 to 22. So first of all then, if you want to live peaceably in Christ's church, Paul tells us, respect those in authority. We read in verses 12 and 13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the first appeal... Which Paul makes to the body is to respect or we might say appreciate a particular group of people. And who is this group of people? Well in our our text Paul does not use any of the technical language which we might find in other passages. But his description here makes clear that, that the people he has in mind are those ministers and elders who carry out the ordained ministry of the church. Now this letter to the Thessalonians is neither a ministerial directory nor a book of church order. So we don't know necessarily who the shepherds of this flock were, nor the circumstances which led to them taking on that role. Nevertheless, Paul's uh, what we might call a three-part, tripartite description of their activity makes clear why it is that they were worthy of the respect and appreciation of believers in Thessalonica first of all we see there that they were those who labored among the Thessalonians they labored among the Thessalonians these were men who worked hard for the Lord and hard for his church and they would have been known to the congregation as diligent workmen in the house of God now I can attest to you Because I hear it a lot. That it is not unusual to hear it said that preachers only work one day a week. Everybody always thinks they're the first to come up with that one. But uh, I hear it a lot. Apparently, at least, that wasn't the case in Thessalonica. The the text doesn't give us an abundant amount of detail regarding their day-to-day duties. But but we may deduce from what Paul says elsewhere about officers in the church, that these men would have been expected to to preach and teach the congregation, to do the work of evangelists, to shepherd the flock, to contend with and correct false teaching, to pray diligently, to visit the sick, among many other things which we can draw out of the pages of the New Testament. So these men were hardworking servants in the church. And yet, in their service they carried a measure of authority. As we can see in verse 12, the second thing that Paul says about such men is that they were over the Thessalonians in the Lord. These were men who ruled over the congregation because they had the necessary qualification and authorization to do so. Uh, Many many folks today seem to wish that the church were entirely uh, egalitarian in its functioning, with every person's having just as much say as the next person. But, but there is no getting around the fact that from the earliest days of the church, features of hierarchy and rank and rule were baked into God's design for His people. However, we can also say that the, qualifi- the qualifier at the end of Paul's description is significant. This was not the authority of tyrants as they were over the Thessalonians, but it was an authority in the Lord. It's an authority in the Lord. So the authority of the church's leaders came from the Lord, and it was used in His service to ends that glorified His name in accordance with His word. Let's put it this way. The authority supported the service, not the service, the authority. Does that make sense? To to put it another way, the, the, the power which had been given to these men was primarily intended as a benefit for the body, not for themselves. And so insofar as they were in power, insofar as they ruled with authority, it was so that they might serve as the Lord had called them to do. And from this arrangement flows the final description of their activity, which is that they were those who admonished the congregation. This suggests us that one of the vital things that ministers and elders are to do in their labors, invested as they are with authority, is to instruct and even correct the congregation so that they might live and walk in a manner which pleases the Lord. This is is what we might refer to as discipleship or, or even discipline in the formal and informal shapes that it takes at different times. Uh, Simply, these these were men who brought the word of God to bear upon the people of God. So these ordained servants were to be respected as those carrying out the Lord's work. And, And Paul elaborates on this point by saying that the church was to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You see, when Paul calls upon the Thessalonians to respect and appreciate their elders, it was not to be the sort of respect that that a slave gives a master, which is owed because it's owed and there's there's nothing you can say about it. It it was to be a genuine display of love. They were to lovingly esteem these men because the work which they were doing was to their benefit. And when the church heeded Paul's appeal they would be well positioned to obey the command issued at the end of verse 13, where we read, be at peace among yourselves. I've already argued briefly this morning that I think this is the... If, insofar as there is a controlling command, the controlling command in the passage, it, it reflects on the appeal which comes before it to respect authority. It's going to foreshadow the appeal which follows it. So, so when congregations respect those who have authority in the Lord over them, it makes for peace. That's that's how these two aspects of verse 13 are tied together. This doesn't mean that the ministers and elders in the church can do whatever they want and expect everyone to toe the line. There's a reason that we're a Presbyterian church. Sometimes the church's rulers need to be called to account for their actions and for their deficiencies. But insofar as the church's shepherds are serving the flock faithfully, even if imperfectly, peace is maintained by giving respect and following their lead. So I ask you this morning, what is your attitude towards those who labor among you and rule over you in the Lord and admonish you? I know, I get it, that's a little awkward for me to ask that question, uh, because I fit that description. Now, I guess I've got a little wiggle room for now because uh, we're still in process. But one of the beauties of preaching through a book is that you know I didn't choose this text to toot my own horn. Uh, I didn't choose this text to address some particular circumstance or situation in the life of the church. This is just the next text up. So I ask you, do you feel respect and esteem for such individuals or is there a spirit of bitterness and rebellion lurking in your heart? Paul's point here is that one of those responses has the potential to make for peace and one has the potential to rip a congregation in two. So we do well to heed Paul's appeal. But as we move to verse 14, we find that this passage is not focused solely upon the relationship between the church's officers and members. It's about life within the church in general. So, So now, Paul's focus widens out. And we see here that the second way to live peaceably in Christ's church is for all of us to help those in need. That's the emphasis of verses 14 and 15. Now, to speak of those in need is to lump different sorts of people together. In this text, Paul actually gets more specific and, and explicitly names three groups which need the help of the church's members. First we see there that he writes, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idol. We've already discussed the fact that to admonish someone was to instruct them, often with the goal of correcting them. So Paul here wants the Thessalonians to work together to get a particular group of people pointed In the right direction. He refers to this group as the idol. Uh, It can be variously translated as as idol, as, as disordered, as undisciplined. There are various arguments for each one. They all sort of hold together though. Because various suggestions have been offered as to what sort of person fits this description. But given the context of the book, it's likely... It's likely that Paul is thinking of those believers who had quit busying themselves with work in order to be busy bodies as they sat and waited for the coming of the Lord. Perhaps you will remember these people from chapter 4. Paul addressed them there, where Paul exhorted the believers to mind their own business and to work with their hands. And these are probably the same folks of whom Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So these individuals have a disordered or an unruly approach to their daily life, having rebelled against the duties which have fallen to them in the course of God's providence. And according to Paul, the the church of Jesus Christ was not to take a live and let live attitude, Towards this problem. He said faithful believers were to come alongside these, these. We might call them misguided saints. And lovingly admonish them. That they might once again please the Lord in their conduct. So admonish the idol. The second way that the Thessalonians were to help others. Is that they were to encourage The faint-hearted. This word encourage means to console, to comfort, to build up. And it was often, we find, in literature outside the New Testament, used to refer to the consolation of those who had experienced some particular hardship or even those who had suffered the loss of a loved one. Uh, For for this reason, some scholars have mused that Paul may here be thinking of those believers introduced at the end of chapter 4, who were grieving hopelessly over those who had fallen asleep in the Lord. You may remember those there, that Paul had to exhort them not to grieve as those who had no hope. Therefore, in light of the corrective teaching that Paul has already provided in this letter, he wanted the church to pick those folks up and to encourage them in the face of their grief. He he wanted them to help them take in, to adopt, and to live in light of his teaching on the day of the Lord and the resurrection to come. Admonish the idol. Come alongside of the, the faint hearted and encourage them. The third way that the Thessalonians were to help others is that they were to help the weak. Now this is a word a weakness which can be used of either physical weakness or spiritual weakness. And considering the spiritual nature of Paul's other concerns in the text, it's most likely reference to those who are spiritually weak. And Paul wants those who are stronger to devote themselves to the care of those who were lacking in some way. They were to come alongside and in their weakness and seek to strengthen them. As with the other groups, there is the question of who Paul here is viewing as being weak. Uh, Any number of shortcomings could fit under this somewhat general heading of weakness. But, But since Paul's exhortations in verses 14 and 15 seem to be tracking with the contents of the latter half of this letter, it may be here that he was thinking of those who were overly anxious and concerned with the coming of the day of the Lord. We just considered them last week in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5. These were those folks who had not fully comprehended Paul's previous teaching on the glory to come for the believer on the day of the Lord. And so they needed the church to help them view their destiny uh, aright. They, They were weak in their understanding and they were weak in their faith because they lived in fear of the coming of the Lord. And having addressed these three groups, admonishment, for the the idle encouragement, for thy heart, help for the weak. Paul then explains the manner in which this work was to be done. He writes at the end of verse 14, Be patient with them all. Patience, or long-suffering, was to characterize the church's dealing with those in need, whatever the need might be. You see, Paul's point is not that, that we should go around constantly telling each other to get with the program. You know, what You're messing up. Get with the program. On the contrary, Paul wants the congregation to aid struggling believers with a spirit of gentleness and concern, bearing with shortcoming and slowness to reform in a patient manner. And this patient disposition is in turn supported by the teaching of verse 14 because it's there that Paul reminds us that it's not our job... To repay everyone according to what they deserve. That's why we can show patience. That's why we can help those who are struggling. Even struggling sinfully. Notice what he says. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So so the help which we offer others isn't meant to tear them down and expose them for what they really are. It's, It's supposed to be a help offered out of genuine concern for their welfare. Even when evil is done to us, we seek to return evil with good. And amazingly, Paul expands that principle beyond the walls of the church and includes everyone. He says, always seek to do good to one another, that's within the church, and to everyone. In this way, the Apostle Paul reflects the teaching of Christ who commanded his disciples to love even their enemies. So everyone that we interact with, everyone that we come into contact with on a day-to-day basis as Christian believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to want good for them. Now, good for them may mean repentance. It may be a turning from their current lifestyle. It may be a rejecting of the many things that they love and value. But, but in, in whatever way is appropriate for each person, we are to seek their good, and to love them, as both Jesus and Paul here commands us. So you want to live peaceably in Christ's church? Learn to help those in need. We may need to be admonished for different sins. We need to be encouraged through different hardships. And we may need help in different matters. But the pattern established here, I believe, is universal. We are to patiently help one another within Christ's church because we are duty bound to seek one another's good. This means that we will need to be involved in in one another's life and I know that thought makes some people uncomfortable but we can only really yield to the obedience these commands require when we are in close proximity to one another. So, So contrary to what many may think the real way to find peace in the church is to get closer to one another not to keep each other at arm's distance. So we're able to live peaceably then when we respect those in authority, when we help those in need, and in the third place, when we engage in worship together. This is the subject of verses 16 to 18. Now admittedly, Paul does not mention the corporate gathering of God's people in this context. However, the context does suggest that this is what he has in mind. Notice, he's addressing the church and issuing collective plural commands to rejoice and pray and give thanks in a passage which immediately precedes a conversation on prophecy. And so these commands to rejoice and pray and give thanks as a body, they sound a lot like what we do in our worship services on the Lord's Day. And when we are rightly engaging in this task together, we're more likely to be at peace with one another. Therefore, Paul commands the church to rejoice always. If you've been with us throughout our study of this book so far, then you know that the Thessalonian church had faced some dark and difficult days. They knew what it meant to suffer. They knew what it meant to hurt. Paul himself was able to say that they knew affliction firsthand. And when we are up against hardship like that, we can get a little cantankerous. Uh, We we can um, get a little grumpy under pressure. We, We start feeling bad for ourselves. Fuses get short. People start taking friendly fire. But the word of the Lord here tells us that the affliction faced by the Thessalonians was not to damper the joy which they had in the Lord. They were to rejoice at all times in all circumstances. That, that doesn't mean that every, uh, every experience within the church needs to be happy-clappy. Okay? So I know some people think that every time we come to church, we've got a big smile on our face, nothing back and will be happening in our lives. All is good and bright. Um, that's not what this means. But it, but it does mean that, that when the Thessalonians came together, when we come together, regardless of persecution outside the church, regardless of strife developing inside the, the church, there is a call to rejoice before the Lord. For His grace and kindness. Regardless of what is happening in this changing world. We can rejoice over the grace and blessing which we have received from an unchanging God. It's, it's His constancy. It's His unchanging nature that allows us to heed this command regardless of what we're facing. And we see that on top of this Always rejoicing, they were also to pray without ceasing. And once again, we can dispute uh, maybe a, a caricatured interpretation of this. This doesn't mean that we, that we have to devote every conscious moment to prayer, as it's sometimes interpreted. But it, doesn't, it does mean that we should be praying constantly and consistently. Our life should be continually marked by the prayers which we offer up to God this was a prayer this excuse me this was an approach to prayer that Paul himself had exemplified in his life and ministry and and so the Thessalonians were to adopt his practice as their own they were to fervently call upon the lord together in order to praise his name and to seek his provision and this is a natural response to knowing that you have a heavenly father who seeks to give good gifts to his children. This is why our services are so interspersed with prayer. Uh, This is why we've just started a prayer meeting, which we had last week, and it was a wonderful time. Because we want to be a worshiping body, which prays without ceasing, knowing that God commands those prayers, and that those prayers in turn enable us to help one another, and to live at peace within the body. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And finally, Paul writes that they were to give thanks in all circumstances. This dovetails with what he has already said about rejoicing and praying. When we are rightly rejoicing and perpetually praying, we have opportunity to give God thanks in all circumstances, knowing that, that even when we are beset by many trials and many griefs, they are nothing when compared to the glory to come when we retain that attitude of thanksgiving, regardless of what is going on in our lives, then we have adopted the biblical perspective, which teaches us that we don't inherently deserve anything. Instead, everything good which we receive is a gift from God, and we ought to receive it with thanks as such. So so as a worshiping body, the Thessalonians were to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God In Christ Jesus for you. They were to do these things because God commands it. Because it is the the natural action of life in Christ. And as with all of these other commands. It is for our good. When we are worshipping together in this manner. Persevering in God honoring praise. Even when under duress. We are certainly better positioned to obey the Lord. And to be at peace with one another in the presence of God. So, we respect those in authority. We help those in need. We engage in worship together. And as we come to the fourth directive for living peaceably in Christ's church, we come to a somewhat difficult section of our text, which centers around a command to test everything. We're now looking at verses 19 to 22. Uh, a section which deals with a unique issue prevalent in the first century church. And there we read, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. As we seek to get to the bottom of, of what Paul is, is teaching here, I think we can break this, this section down into two chunks. There were things that the Thessalonians weren't supposed to do. And there were things that the Thessalonians were supposed to do. The things which they weren't supposed to do appear in verses 19 and 20. Paul commands the Thessalonians not to quench the Spirit, which is a way of saying that they were not to stifle or suppress the Spirit's work in the church. And in order that they might not quench the Spirit, they were also not to despise prophecies. Now here we come to a difficulty. Because there is disagreement over the nature of prophecy in the New Testament. And there is disagreement over whether those prophecies continue beyond the age of the New Testament. Consequently then there is disagreement over how we are to understand and to apply a text like this. Now I am not going to be able to address. We are not going to be able to consider every question which might come to your mind this morning. But we do want to touch some of these contentious points so that we might come to a better understanding of this inspired text. First of all, while some have tried to suggest that prophecy in the New Testament was substantially different from prophecy in the Old Testament, there is little reason to believe that's the case. This sort of suggestion is often made in order to lower the bar for so-called contemporary prophecies which may seem to contain kernels of truth, while also missing the mark in other respects. However, to let modern day experiences dictate our understanding of the text is to let the, the cart drive the horse. So it seems better to assess New Testament prophecy in much the same way that it was assessed in the Old Testament. Prophecy is either true, carrying with it God's own authority, or it is false and worthy of rejection. Uh, The the Lord does not offer to us mixed prophecies which we must divide up and hope that we can figure out. For our purposes then, the definition of New Testament prophecy provided by Richard Gaffin in his book Perspectives on Pentecost gets the idea here across well enough. He says, Prophetic proclamation is spirit-worked speech of such a quality that its authority resides just in that inspired origin. So notice, New Testament prophecy, like Old Testament prophecy, is speech which is proclaimed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so it carries the authority of the Spirit who speaks it. So if the the Spirit is at work in someone such that they are prophesying, then they are speaking words from God which carry the authority which you would expect of God's word. And obviously, this sort of proclamation was taking place in the first century. We read of prophets at work in the book of Acts. Paul addresses the subject of prophesying at multiple points in his letters. That's why it's a matter of concern here at the end of this this letter. It It was a live issue. For some reason, the Thessalonians, given their circumstances, were at risk of quenching the Spirit by despising prophecies. And it's hard for us to say from our... 21st century vantage point, why that was the case. It may have been that certain bad prophets ruined it for everyone, so to speak. Such that their false prophecies had turned some of the believers against the practice altogether. Uh, We might find support for this in the book of 2 Thessalonians, where we uh, discover that there were some in Thessalonica who were widely proclaiming that the day of the Lord has already come. Uh, They they were issuing a a word uh, from the Lord which was false. Perhaps that sort of thing was already taking place in the life of the believers here. It may be that prophecy had taken a secondary place behind the practice of speaking in tongues. We have precedent for that in the church at Corinth where uh, Paul has to address uh, the the privileged place that they had given to uh, the speaking of tongues. Either way regardless of whatever was motivating their temptation to despise prophecy, they were not to respond in the way that they had been responding. You can imagine how despising true prophets and true prophecies could disrupt the peace and purity of the church. Instead, Paul, Paul, instead of continuing to urge them to take this wholly negative approach, they were to test everything. When someone come with a prophecy, they were to put it to the test. Paul doesn't give us a criteria for doing that. But it probably, we can say, I think, uh, required something like determining whether or not the prophecy harmonized with the scriptures which the Lord had already given. Uh, Evaluating whether or not a, a prophet really knew Christ and his salvation. That's one of the concerns we find, especially in 1 John uh, considering the result of the prophecy, considering uh, the, the, the character of the prophet, and so on. There are a number of tests, perhaps, uh, that the church was to put these prophets in their prophecies to. So rather than shunning prophecy altogether, the Thessalonians were to evaluate what they were hearing and to distinguish the good from the bad. If someone to be claimed to be speaking in the Spirit, they were to test their message, and if it passed the test, they were to hold fast to that teaching. They were to accept it. If it didn't, if it didn't pass the test, they were to abstain from it. Or we might, we might translate, they were to hold it away from them. Now those, those final commands in verses uh, 21, excuse me, 19, excuse me, in verses 21 and 22, I was right the first time, are often taken a general way. But, but that embrace of good and rejection of evil appears to be the conclusion to this section on testing everything. Now, the question is, what do we do with this? Does prophecy continue today such that we need to be active in testing it so that we might know whether to hold it fast or to hold it away from us, to abstain from it? Well, my answer shouldn't surprise you if you have um, familiarized yourself with the doctrinal standards of this church. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith answers this question actually in its very first paragraph. Uh, I I won't read it in its entirety. It's a long paragraph, but you ought to read it in your own time. uh, To summarize, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 1 teaches that uh, in order to save a people for Himself, the Lord revealed Himself and His salvation using various means at various points throughout redemptive history. That revelation was subsequently preserved in written form for the benefit of the church. Those are the scriptures. And now that we have those scriptures, the former ways which God used to reveal himself, which would include prophecy, have now ceased. Now that is within the broader landscape of evangelical Christianity, a somewhat controversial Time fails us this morning to make an extensive case for it. But suffice it to say, very briefly, that the sign gifts in the New Testament, like prophesying, like speaking in tongues, were part of those signs and wonders which accompanied the giving of revelation in the New Covenant age, verifying the work of Christ. That revelation has now been completed. It's right here for you, recorded in the pages of your Bible. Therefore, revelatory gifts have now ceased. This, while shocking to some to even say that, shouldn't be all that surprising. Shouldn't be all that surprising. When we examine the Bible as a whole, what we find is that even within the context of the Old Testament, bouts of supernatural revelation were confined to particular epochs within the history of God's people. Prophets did not grow on trees even during the times when we think that prophets grew on trees. Even while the events of the Bibles were taking place, these were confined particular periods and during particular redemptive historical epochs within the church. But if the giving of inspired prophecy has now ceased, then what do we do with this text? What do we do with verses 19-22? We just throw it away? No use? No good? Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you this morning that we can actually still heed the commands not to quench the spirit, not to despise prophecies, to test everything, to hold fast to what is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. The only difference between our day and theirs is that we don't receive new prophecies. We don't receive new prophecies. So we trust that the Spirit is still at work in the church. And we trust that we still have a collection of inspired prophecy right here in the Bible. We're not to despise these prophecies. And in fact, they are now the standard by which we test everything into which we come into contact. Good and evil can be measured by conformity to this work. As a result, one of the ways that we live peaceably in Christ's church with one another is by making the Scriptures our standard rather than allowing our own individual emotions and religious sentiments to rule us. Use, Use this gift given by God to His church to test everything. That is one of the ways to peace within the church of Jesus Christ. So as we come to the close of our text this morning, we've found a pattern for living peaceably in Christ's church. Paul has exhorted us to respect those in authority, to help those in need, to engage in worship together, and to test everything. Next week, he's going to tie all this together with the blessing in the name of God of peace that we might be found blameless on the day of His return. And for now, we observe that each of these commandments remain relevant in our own day, as we've seen, and we ought to apply them appropriately. The power of the Spirit. So do you want to know peace in this life? Come to Jesus Christ. There's no real and lasting peace. Outside of him. He laid down his life. And paid the penalty for sins. So that enemies of God might be redeemed. Reconciled. And brought into a state of peace with God. You can know peace. If you would trust Christ. For your salvation. Believing. And resting in the the one who died and was raised. He, He would give to you the peace that passes understanding. As the scripture tells us. If only you would repent of your sins and believe. And once you believe. We're confident based on our text today. That you are added to Christ's church. Where the spirit works among us. Teaching us to live out the way of peace. Which Christ purchased for us. So brothers and sisters. Let us all. Look to Christ, seek His peace, and test everything by these Spirit-inspired words so that we might grow in peace as we live the Christian life alongside one another. Let's ask His help now to that end.